0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Osbarki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. I'm here. Let's do it. He's here. He's back. We gave him a week off, some respite, and now he's back. We're talking about medical stuff. This is episode 180. We're talking about sleep apnea. This pairs with the article recently published on the website. So we link that in the description below. This is not just a recapitulation of the article. We've got some extra nuance, some extra information, some extra color commentary. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Please continue to listen. I mean, or don't, you know, I won't know. All I know is the downloads, right? Like,
1: yeah, if people want to go read the article instead, I'll be perfectly satisfied with that. We're getting that's them multiple avenues for learning. That's fine that, by me.
0: <laughs> that's right. However you want to feed your brain hole. All right. Uh, first up, some announcements. We are back live in the flesh for a learning opportunity, we got a two-day live seminar in Los Angeles in November. Uh, so Dr. Baraki will be there. I'll be there. Leah, Tom will both be there. We're probably going to get uh, Alan down. Uh, that, that would be great. Um, also, just as an aside, do you think that Alan had the most luxurious beard out of all World's Strongest Man competitors and support staff? Because I think for my money, that, that easily the best.
1: I'll take your word for it. I was, uh, can't say I was following the beard, uh, the beard competition for
0: a mean, strong experience. Yeah, look, I already know that they're freaky strong. I'm just, I'm just there for the beard game. And, uh, Alan has a very, a very regal beard, looked very lubricious as well. And, uh, if you don't know what lubricious means, you should check out the latest post on the Barbell Medicine main account. <laughs> we do a physics analysis of how beard hair in the bar path may, you know, contribute to some resistance, but not as much as skin. Uh, in any case, uh, also, Austin had been killing it. We, we tried to record this before, and and I just I really wanted people to understand. You are you now a four time recipient of this is this is a an academic award for your teaching skills. This is from residents; they vote on like their favorite or the best. Is it is it the same? Is it like a favorite? Attending, and then this is like the best, or is it the
1: same award? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what the question prompt is to them if it's about teaching skill or a popularity contest, but uh, yeah, that they're uh, at the academic internal medicine program that I work and teach at. I got the teaching award among medical students for, I think, the fourth year in a row, and then the overall residency teacher of the year award from the residents, which was a a cool thing. The first time I've won that one, so I was pleased with that.
0: Uh, I only have two words and still (laughs) it's like every time you win you're like and still (laughs) nice all right that's yeah congratulations uh my my accolades are you know paltry by comparison but i did (laughs) there there was an entrepreneurship capstone that i spoke uh spoke at for lawrence university and that was fun just yeah i'm always it's it's very it's routine for me to talk about exercise health medicine primary care preventative med that sort of stuff it's just you know i feel like it's part of my dna at this point whereas the business side all i do this every day uh but it's not i don't know i just feel different about where you
1: were you speaking to people who are generally in the business scene who like you might be like are they judging me <laughs>
0: yeah right i'm sure i mean i'm sure either way right yeah. but they're entering the business scene i think most of them are trying to get into uh, some sort of entrepreneurial gotcha. uh, gig okay. afterwards yeah. and i'm like I mean, look. If you're trying to get in the health of fitness space, I got I I can help you out. But uh, you know, other stuff.
1: Also, I've just been winging it for a while. So, hundred percent, yeah,
0: hundred (laughs) percent. I got the MBA to make myself feel better, not not to. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all right. Without uh, wasting too much time, let's talk about sleep apnea. That's today's topic. Uh, Before we get any further, Austin, let's just give the listeners at home a definition of what is obstructive sleep apnea.
1: Yeah. So the, the term can sound scary and and complicated and not be super clear. And so it is worth defining some things in general, normal breathing. Um, there's a lot actually of, of parts and pieces that go into normal breathing. And ultimately the goal of breathing in and out is gas exchange. We want to bring oxygen in and to allow carbon dioxide from you know, uh, the byproduct of metabolism in our body to be exhaled out. And that requires a whole bunch of things to be in, in play. Uh, one that is really pertinent for this discussion is we need the actual airways, the tubes, what people commonly refer to as their windpipe, to be open. And that's what will allow uh, that airflow and gas exchange to go in and out. And that is something that uh, typically is the case when we are awake during the day. However, when people are asleep at night, um, there are a variety of factors that can contribute to either partial or complete kind of collapse of the airway uh the the windpipe uh, and to, to simplify a little bit and that can lead to complications because uh, obviously gas exchange breathing in breathing out is really important uh, for all aspects of our physiology and so when that is when that is impaired and the gas exchange does not happen as it, as it is supposed to, there are a whole host of downstream consequences that we will get to later. And so ultimately that's a long-winded way of saying obstructive sleep apnea describes a breathing disorder uh, that happens during sleep that leads to repeated partial or complete kind of blockages, collapse, obstruction of the airway. And that can be graded on a spectrum of severity. It could be really mild uh, where it might happen really intermittently, occasionally, not very often, or all the way up to severe where it's like Happening near, near continuously, many, many, many times, even per minute for people, and that can have increasing consequences long term.
0: Yeah, and so just to be clear, this is obstructive sleep apnea. There are other types of sleep apnea. The you know the most common other one, which is thankfully relatively rare, is central uh, sleep apnea, where people are just not getting the signal to their diaphragm to like, hey, contract. You know, let the get More some parking partial-
1: disorder than anything else. Yeah. Yes,
0: the pipes are fine brain itself not 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 doing its thing. Uh, So we're strictly talking about obstructive sleep apnea. And the reason why we're talking about because it is this is very, very common. And in addition to being very, very common, it is under treated and under under uh, diagnosed uh, prior to that. So in North America alone, approximately 15 to 30% of males have obstructive sleep apnea 10 to 15% in females. And that's basically when we're saying that about for every hour you sleep, that you're not breathing well enough five times or more. So that's called the apnea hypopnea index. Basically, it's a fancy way of saying you are not breathing at a rate, getting enough oxygen into the blood uh, to maintain normal oxygen levels. And so if that happens five or more times per hour, well, we would we would diagnose you with sleep apnea. So normally people will do this, you know, once, twice, three times a lady or less, <laughs> but if it gets over five, yeah, we're like, mm, this is sleep apnea and you can get different prevalences based on different definitions, but that's kind of the definition we're running with. Uh, globally, people who have this uh, desaturation or lowered oxygen concentration in the blood um, significant to cause negative side effects that we see from obstructive sleep apnea. This is prevalent in like 936 million people worldwide. That's a
1: lot. That is that's
0: a lot, people. A lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot. So that's why we're talking about it. And, and again, there are some ties in, tie, uh, there's a tie-in here to people who are into resistance training in addition uh, to people uh, who are just after their, they're trying to live their best life, as, as the kids say. Um, the prevalence does appear to be increasing, and this is likely related to the increasing rates of obesity, um, but also the increased detection rate of obstructive sleep apnea itself. Now that we know it's a thing, more people are looking for it, we can test for it. And so both of those things are probably contributing to the increased uh, prevalence. Um, but from 1990 to 2010, um, basically, uh, we saw the rate increase from 11 to 15%, um, in, of of adult males with obstructive sleep apnea, and then from four to 5%. Um, and it's maybe close to double that now. Um, so again, both the obesity, uh, the increase in obesity, and then the increased detection rate probably contributing to the increased prevalence. Um, and, and that's worldwide. In the United States, it's, it's going up too, obviously. Uh, the interesting thing here is that this also parallels with people who are sleeping less than eight hours per night. Like the, these, There's just a this increase in prevalence in obesity. There's an increase in prevalence in sleep apnea and an increase in prevalence in people who are not sleeping very well um close to 30% of people in the workforce are sleeping
1: less than 6 hours per day which yeah and that ties into a podcast we've done previously where we talked about the effects of sleep restriction on like appetite hunger uh, uh satiety and like spontaneous calorie intake so it's a complicated like you know uh, pat uh, process that's kind of pushing in both directions. In other words, the, the, the obesity may be impairing sleep quality and, 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 uh, the restfulness of people's sleep and how they feel and function during the day. And then, you know, at the same time, the, uh, uh the, the, sleep issues can contribute to increases in appetite, increased calorie intake, you know, spontaneously, not that people are volitionally choosing, you know, right, uh, yeah. uh, that as a result, it's just kind of the biological processes that are happening that then perpetuate the obesity and it becomes this kind of nasty cycle. So it's definitely something that we look out for pretty aggressively and, and check for and, and treat pretty commonly.
0: Yeah. That said, there's a a research study that looked at 44 different practices, medical practices. Only 20 percent of patients with sleep related symptoms who regularly see their primary care physician actually reported these symptoms to the clinician. So the clinician has to have some, you know, suspicion or at least have this as part of their algorithm. They're like asking about this stuff because, again, due to the prevalence, you would we we would expect. Uh, uh, you know, this to be happening regularly in clinical practice. And certainly in some practices it does, but it's still underdiagnosed and undertreated. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I guarantee mean, you sure that. Well, the, the, look, we get, you know, for each episode, we're getting, you know, hundred thousand downloads or something like that. And just percentage wise, if I was guessing, I would say that the, of the people uh, who are listening, you know, yeah. Somewhere between 10 to 20% of them are going to have sleep apnea and probably less than half of them have you know, actually been screened for and then subsequently treated for it. So if you're listening to this and you're like <laughs> tired, please continue to listen <laughs> because this may may pertain to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And to that, to the, your comment on that study, I also wonder, you know, what proportion of the clinicians, the, the, the doctors or whoever we're seeing these patients ask about sleep quality, restfulness, you know, uh, um, um, pretty, in, in general, to assess that with their patients. I know that's a standard question that I'll ask everybody. And it becomes even more important if I see, um, you know, things that may be complications from sleep apnea. So if I have somebody who's high, whose blood pressure is high, then that jumps way up my list of things mm-hmm. to look into and ask about. Um, it kind of triggers a lot of other particular questions uh, for me, things like, you know, their restfulness of their sleep and alcohol use and and uh, other medications and things like that. So um, it's I I think that if you're a patient and you're experiencing these things, then bringing them up is important. And hopefully if you're a clinician and you're listening to this, then you're asking your people about your your patients about their sleep quality and how they feel and how they're functioning during the day.
0: Yep. 10 out of 10. Agree. Uh, So speaking of things that you look for or may see that otherwise help you kind of like hone in on asking the questions or screening somebody, uh, what are the risk factors for sleep apnea?
1: Yeah, there, there are a bunch of uh, risk factors that are pretty well established at this point. So neck circumference is a commonly cited one. Uh, in men, a neck circumference of 17 inches or 43 centimeters or greater. And then in women, uh, 16 inches or 40.5 centimeters or greater. Um, and that's thought to be related to the amount of, again, tissues around the throat, the neck, the, the airway itself. And the more of that tissue there is present you know, it's, if I had to guess, as with most things, it's probably more complicated than like just purely a little mechanical pressure on the airway. Um, But uh, that's, you know, one of the simpler kind of uh, explanations given for that as a a risk factor, but definitely any other things that are Affecting the respiratory tract. So things that can impair smooth airflow, um, for example, uh, deviated septums are pretty, co- uh, pretty common. And that's a fancy way of, of talking about the little uh, uh, tissue that's in between your two nostrils. And if that is shifted over to one side or the other, that can mess with uh, uh, smooth airflow and that can contribute to snoring and that uh, can also be related to sleep apnea. And then other kinds of facial structures. So if people have really short jaws, um, meaning front to back, like their jaws, relatively speaking, pulled pulled back, really large tongue, really long, to- large tonsils, these are all things that can also block the airway, particularly when people are asleep and, you know, you're not really paying attention to that. Things can get kind of uh, uh, loose and floppy in the, in the back of your throat and contribute to that uh, airway kind of becoming transiently or episodically blocked and uh, impairing. Uh, gas exchange and breathing. Um, On top of that, there are tons of other ones. Again, we've already mentioned how obesity contributes, and and at least part of that mechanism is going to be through the increased tissue around the airway in the neck, but also probably contributes in a bunch of other ways. Some we know, some we probably haven't even recognized yet. Uh, Age and sex are also viewed uh, as risk factors here. Um, So increasing prevalence uh, uh, starting from middle age and kind of on from there, and men are typically at higher risk from women. Um, and this is also thought to be related to some of the changes that can happen to tissue structure, integrity, things like that, um, over time, which raises some interesting questions that we may get into about, you know, if people perform resistance training, does that uh, have any impact on the tissue, you know, structure, integrity, quote unquote quality compared to those who don't, but we'll, we can, uh, hypothesize about that later because we certainly see plenty of people who strength train, who have it, including both of us. So perhaps not, um, People with high blood pressure, uh, the physiology here is pretty complicated, and so I will spare uh, the listeners uh, that, but high blood pressure um, is something that can be a consequence of sleep apnea. So when I see it, I don't view it as necessarily as something that's causing the sleep apnea, but kind of more the other way around. It's, a, it, it's more of a sign of the underlying condition, and so that kind of triggers my thought process. As with most things, a family history, uh, genetic predisposition, and those are usually via numerous mechanisms. Similarly, how there's a family history, there's genetic predispositions to obesity and to to any number of other things. And then finally, drugs and medications. And and this uh, is a really common one. The biggest one that I investigate in this situation is alcohol use. Uh, But really, any kind of sedative type or sedating type medication, that could be pain medicines, opioids, um, sleep aids of of any kind, uh, pain, you know, certain kinds of pain medicines, quote unquote, muscle relaxers that aren't really muscle relaxers. Um, that kind of tranquilize people at night. Things like that that can obviously further impair people's ability to uh, maintain their airways open. And then additionally, if their airway does kind of get collapsed or blocked during an apneic or a hypopneic episode where they're not breathing as much, The sedation of those, the drug or the medication or the alcohol or whatever it is, can also limit or impair uh, kind of like your brain's ability to appropriately respond, react to that, and like get you awake and breathing again. Um, And so there's multiple consequences of those kind of things. And so those uh, alcohol and opioids and pain medicines and all these other kind of medicines are are, are things that I commonly ask about when I'm uh, evaluating somebody in this situation. Yeah.
0: When we were talking about, uh, I remember during residency, we were, we were kind of talking about some of the mechanisms by which alcohol and sleeping meds and sleep aids, like you mentioned, particularly ones with antihistamines. So it's like it it, it puts you to sleep, right? It, and it messes with your sleep architecture thing one, right? So your progression to deep sleep, that's that's kind of jacked up. So already you're like, hmm, not getting as high quality of sleep as I'd want, even if I'm sleeping more or having an easier time to sleep. But in addition to that, your likelihood of having apneic episodes goes up too. So maybe if you were borderline before, now you're actually, you know, a night of fitful rest. And so, yeah, a lot of times people will respond, you know, in the morning they're like, "Mm, I didn't sleep that well, even though I slept like a long time. And it's like, well, some of that may be related to, to this, but again, we wouldn't run or reduce down that experience to just like, yes, you had a little, you had some, some apneas. Um, So here's, here's the question. Do you know how big your neck is? Been uh, I, I
1: think it's i think it's actually just under 17 but i have not measured it in a while
0: yeah i'm I'm sporting that 17 and a half inch you know wide wide body neck that's that's the the upgraded option
1: was that when you were weighing more like 205 210 or i think you're a little lighter now yeah
0: yeah yeah i don't know i haven't no, measured that
1: your, that your, your pr neck circumference was yeah associated. pr neck
0: circumference is just north of 17.5 yeah <laughs> okay. i was like i was like put the big one on there <laughs> <laughs> but so, so interestingly, you know, cause people are going to uh, listen to this and they're like, well, so if my neck gets bigger, does that put me at higher risk? And so there's some actually interesting, interesting data on this. Um, there was a study that they, uh, at, at a national level powerlifting meet. Um, they recruited 74 different athletes. 51 were men, 23 were women, recorded their anthropometry and their strength performance. And basically, they they broke them down into two different groups, groups that were they called weaker, which I don't know if the people identified after the study. They're like, wait, who you call the weak, man? Uh, Those individuals had a Wilkes score of less than 370. And then those who were stronger with a Wilkes score of greater than 370. Um, Now, just for comparative purposes, that Wilkes score is fine. But I think as you get further along in a powerlifting career, as you get more and more advanced, 370 is, I mean. Both of our Wilkes scores are right at 500 or, or just above. And so I think this, you know, the, the trend of this data makes it more interesting than the data itself. So in any case, the men who were had Wilkes scores higher than 370. And if you're not a powerlifter, what the Wilkes score basically assesses is how much weight you lifted total between your best squat, bench, and deadlift and your body weight. So a higher Wilkes score is better. The stronger men who had a Wilkes score of greater than 370 had an average neck circumference of 16 and a half inches. And then the stronger women. Had an average neck circumference of 14.3 inches. Now the cut points were what 17 and 16. A- and so within that, and we add another layer here, that the average BMI of power lifters, this was at another national level competition, the average BMI was 27.4 for the men that they studied there. And you start thinking like Does powerlifting or that sort of training put me at higher risk of obstructive sleep apnea? Or is this just something that we're seeing that people with those body types, with the propensity to gain a bunch of upper body mass, uh, you know, yeah, those folks are going to have higher risk of obstructive sleep apnea. What do do you think on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this has been – uh, otherwise really rigorously studied in direct fashion with this kind of uh, athletic population that we work with. If I had to guess, I would say, yeah, I think they probably do have a higher risk of sleep apnea. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I've seen it. There's a few, there's a study I know on American football players and a study on rugby players. Um, and there may be another one. I think it's on wrestling, but don't, don't hold me to that. And yeah, there's some general trend, but that's people that are carrying more muscle mass. They also tend to have higher BMIs and they also, and and if you're in that population it's likely that your neck circumference is going to be increased too. So you would ex- imagine that sports that select for people with high amounts of lean body mass, particularly high amounts of upper body lean body mass. I mean, yeah, that's going to, that's going to be a risk factor. And so I think, you know, you and I both have sleep apnea where like yeah. a badge of honor. Um, <laughs> but if you were thinking about what are some of the risks or potential downsides to getting as jacked as possible, you're like, I mean, sleep apnea. It's not. It's not great. The the mask isn't like a. That's not a selling point as a, yeah. as a single guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. For, for me, I don't actually know how much of it is is the training, muscle gain, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. I have had a sl- I've had a deviated septum since I was like in high school and I think that that may be a bigger contributor honestly cuz I still don't cross that like technique, you know, of course it is a somewhat arbitrary like line where that 17 is, but I'm, I as far as I know I've not been above it. <laughs> and so sure. there may be other things going on for me, but um certainly, you know, it, it it's something that can happen and is identifiable and is treatable and so if you want to train and get big and strong and you uh, feel tired <laughs> and are worried that you may have this then We'll get after it so
0: yeah yeah it's just interesting i'll be curious to see if more people investigate this just because uh you may not as a clinician for example you may not otherwise have a high like clinical suspicion of an individual who's relatively lean otherwise healthy and young having sleep apnea unless they come in after having listened to this podcast They're like look i'm tired during the day my neck is big i took the stop bang screening tool which we'll talk about here in a second. And I'm at high risk. Please evaluate me for sleep apnea. You just have it. You would have to have a really high clinical suspicion, which I imagine you do. But some of that is like your own personal experience. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about what sleep apnea is. What are the risk factors for it? But now, why is this even important, though? Okay. Yeah, I know, Dr. Baraki, we got to breathe to like live. Okay. (laughs) But does this actually cause disease or is the sleep apnea the disease itself? What's the deal?
1: Yeah. So these, the issue with these blockages in uh, the airway and, and, um, gas exchange and oxygenation leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. And that leads to a cascade of consequences. One of which is obviously a survival mechanism. Our brain can detect this and it wakes us up, um, to get us breathing again. And so some people are like, yeah, I don't, uh, wake up that I know of during, during the night. So I don't have this, but actually that's not, that's not it. It wakes you up just enough to get breathing again, but not, uh, necessarily enough to come to full consciousness. And so people can be waking up many, many, many times per minute throughout a whole night, and they might never know it. And then they wake up and they feel terrible during the day. So typically, uh, one common feature is uh, what's called excessive daytime sleepiness, or just, you know, being tired, disproportionate to perhaps the amount that you might expect for the amount of time that you spent in bed or the amount you slept. Uh, Morning headaches are another common feature of this. Uh, All of these things can contribute to impairments in memory, difficulty concentrating, attentional issues, which itself uh, brings its own risks and dangers like increasing uh, uh, risks of uh, being involved in car crashes and things like that. That's been, that's an established thing, which is uh, concerning. Um, there are a bunch of other endocrine or hormone related uh, uh, consequences of this as well. So it can be, we, we see it um, in individuals with low testosterone. Unfortunately, people who have low testosterone uh, uh, are not often evaluated for sleep apnea and many places just put them on testosterone, which is the incorrect treatment for somebody in that situation. Just up the dose. That's what yes, you got to yes, do. Yes, not <laughs> (laughs) the correct practice uh but some people just want to be on test so they they do that anyway that's the wrong move um and then a bunch of other cardiovascular complications so issues affecting the heart high blood pressure which itself can uh, affect the heart and and many other organs increasing risk of stroke it can contribute to abnormal heart rhythms like atrial fibrillation which itself can also increase risk of stroke Uh, um, uh, as well as other heart-related complications, high blood pressure in the lungs, as well as in the rest of the body, um, has associations with diabetes, overall just increase in risk of uh, premature death. So there is lots of, there are lots of complications, and this has even been an incomplete list, but plenty of things that we see. I mean, I see effectively all of these things every day in practice. And uh, a substantial portion of the time, um, even when somebody might tell me, yes, I already know that I have sleep apnea. Okay, do you use, are you treated for it? And they're like, no. No. <laughs> it's like, yep, okay, we should work on that.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah I, I I tend to think about like the underlying mechanism, like as far as we know, going into two different like categories, two different like umbrella categories, one being basically poor sleep quality, because you're getting all these micro arousals, which also by the way would be a terrible nickname for somebody. Oh, micro arousals here. It's like what the Come on, man. Uh, so you're either having poor, poor sleep quality is one, and the other one is the sympathetic nervous system activity. So the, the poor sleep quality drives all sorts of stuff. Like you said, the excessive daytime sleepiness, um, and that can have knock on effects, altering how full you feel from a meal, your appetite, and what you crave. All of those things change because if you You weren't sleeping very well, so there can be an increased risk then of weight gain and developing obesity, um, dyslipidemia or cholesterol problems as it's commonly referred to, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, etc. Also, because of the disturbed sleep, you're not getting that normal circadian rhythm, that restful sleep, and sort of uh, how that coincides with the light-dark cycle. So you can have endocrine uh, problems uh, because, again, you're not sleeping very well, you can have poor uh, ability to focus, cognitive function, altered mood. I mean, so any one of those like, you know, spin-offs, you can, yeah, you see an increased risk of depression, for example, increased risk of cognitive impairment. Sure. Um, the sympathetic nervous system activity uh, is that that's a reflexive sort of way that your brain gets your body to wake up so that you can breathe. And so we're like, cool, I, my brain's taking care of this. No problem, right? Well, the issue is that at when you're sleeping, the sympathetic nervous system which is the fight or flight kind of arm of your autonomic nervous system. The other one being the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest arm. Um, that's not the sympathetic nervous system is not supposed to be that active. Cause again, you're literally resting, right? So sympathetic nervous system is supposed to be like pretty low. And because you're getting all these like spurts of norepinephrine and epinephrine, which are the kind of neuro uh, neurotransmitters that the sympathetic nervous system uses, that's causing, your blood vessels to constrict, for example. Um, and that's one of the mechanisms by which high, uh, high blood pressure can result from, um, obstructive sleep apnea. But this persistent, like over, you know, hyperreflexive activity of the sympathetic nervous system, that's also associated with the rest of this stuff, atrial fibrillation, peripheral artery disease, pulmonary hypertension, heart failure, all this other sort of stuff. Like your blood pressure is supposed to go down overnight. Yeah. I think it's
1: the the, the the athletes and the lifters in the audience will understand if we say <laughs> sympathetic nervous system activity is what is maxed out when you are about to pull your third deadlift for the win or something like that. In the power for sure, or go or go for a PR. That is not supposed to be the internal state that your body and nervous system are in while you are in deep sleep. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know what's it's funny that <laughs>
0: yeah, if all these people talking about adrenal fatigue, right? Which like this made up thing, unless you actually have like physical adrenal damage yeah. you have con syndrome you have adrenal insufficiency you have something other sort of deal if they just focused on sleep apnea as far as like that's that's the their you know big thing tar- that they're targeting like we don't want this hyper overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system i'd be fine with it i would just leave them alone i'd be like this sure. is fine This is fine, but they don't, but they don't. Um, So yeah, basically you're, you're turned up. You're on pre-workout 24 seven, which sounds awesome, uh, (laughs) but not, not great. So yeah, it, it, I am unsatisfied with the underlying pathophysiology. I'm, I want to learn more. I want to know more, but this has not been fleshed out all the way. So those two like umbrella things, poor sleep quality and the sympathetic nervous system overactivity, that's kind of how I conceptualize this, but there's going to be more stuff. I just don't know them yet, and we're on a, t- we're on a time crunch here, guys, so we, we just can't opine eloquently about all the potential uh, pathophysiology. Anyway, moving on to something much more practical. We talked about what sleep apnea is. We talked about why it's a big deal, who gets it, risk factors, et cetera. Now, here's the thing. Should everyone be screened for this? And and just for the people who haven't listened to our podcast, it's one of my favorite podcasts, by the way, our screening podcast. Wh- what is the difference between screening and diagnosis, and then who should get screened for, for sleep apnea?
1: Yeah. As you know, it's a topic that gets me unusually fired up is uh, screening. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yep. <laughs> uh, screening is, is the process of searching for evidence of disease or risk factors for disease in people who feel fine and have no symptoms or complaints whatsoever. And the thinking uh, when you do something like that is that if you identify this disease process or this risk factor for disease earlier in the course of somebody's life, who, again, has no symptoms at this time, doesn't feel completely fine, then you may have, ideally, a cost-effective treatment that you could offer them at that time that would substantially impact the trajectory of their health uh, course over over the course of life. Um, And so there are only very few small number of conditions that we have really good evidence that we should be searching for, even in people who feel completely fine. For example, as we talked about in recent uh, podcast, blood pressure, blood pressure, when it's high, uh, typically in most people does not cause symptoms, but we also have great evidence that if we screen people who feel fine and we find high blood pressure, we have very inexpensive safe treatments that we can offer people that will dramatically reduce their risk of having substantial health complications, stroke, heart attack, premature death. That's an excellent case for screening. Um, On the other hand, there are lots of things that people think are useful to test, um, uh, which we have talked about in that screening podcast uh, and and elsewhere, um, where... We don't have any good evidence or we have evidence that it does not help to search for these things in people who feel fine because either treating those things doesn't actually impact their downstream health or we don't actually have anything to treat. We don't have a treatment for that supposed condition. And so that's the whole spiel of screening in a tiny nutshell. And you contrast that with the process of diagnosis. Diagnosis is searching for a reason or an explanation for somebody's symptoms, complaints, how they look, feel, whatever's going on when they actually have something going on, not a situation where they feel completely fine and they have no complaints. So that's kind of the main difference.
0: Yep. No, I like that. And and to be fair, it's not like Austin is saying, look, until we have evidence that the screening thing is useful, we shouldn't test for it. It's just that I, probably you get more angry about the stuff we have evidence against screening yes, for correct. or that we don't have yeah. any adequate treatments. We're like, well, what are we doing this for?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why did we search for this thing? If we have nothing we can do about it, right? Yeah.
0: But if there's no evidence, you're like, hmm, I don't know if I agree, but I don't necessarily feel strongly about it. Cause you know, how can you yeah. feel strongly?
1: I have nothing to base a strong feeling on, right?
0: <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I am Switzerland. <laughs> uh, okay. So as far as screening and obstructive sleep apnea goes, this isn't great because there are no studies that evaluate the effect of screening everybody for obstructive sleep apnea. On outcomes, meaning like, do they have a reduced risk of high blood pressure? Do people like people in general have a reduced risk of high blood pressure or major adverse cardiac event or type two diabetes or any of the other sequelae you see that sometimes occur as a result of, of obstructive sleep apnea. But we do have good evidence that treatment of those with sleep apnea with a CPAP, which stands for continuous positive airway pressure or mandibular advancement devices, which is I just call an oral appliance because that sounds way better, um, uh, Then the the, uh, uh, acronym MAD. It's like, oh, you got my MAD? I'm like, that sounds like either a street drug or like some sort of like, I don't know. So we just use oral appliance. We have evidence that using a CPAP or the oral appliance can actually improve outcomes that we're measuring. We're either uh, uh, diagnosing people with obstructive sleep apnea or other like important validated metric tools, like how often they stop breathing every hour, how sleepy they are. What their blood pressure is, things like things you actually care about. And so, within that, yeah, you're not going to get like a grade A recommendation from the United States Preventative Services Task Force. Like, you should screen everyone for sleep apnea. But they're like, yeah, but uh, we have pretty good evidence that if you catch it, we can treat it and good stuff happens. Um, In addition to that, the like second layer of that onion is that we, uh, when we assess like, well, what would, what bad, what bad things would happen here? The screening tool is effectively free. It takes very little time um, and it's reasonably sensitive, meaning that it's going to catch all the people, most of the people that have it. And it's reasonably specific, meaning it's not going to catch a bunch of stuff that, you know, we don't need to further evaluate anyway. Uh There are no real harms from this. In fact, the screening. Because it's not like people are like paralyzed. Oh my gosh, I might have the sleep apnea thing. That that tends to not be uh, something that, that happens. The actual like side effect has to do with treatment. People like wear the sleep the CPAP mask. For example, they might report skin irritation or rash because they're allergic to the actual uh, device material. For example, or uh,
1: or just the the cost and inconvenience of having the thing. I mean, honestly, yeah. it is it is, like it's not a, a trivial task to transition to using something like this. It does require a pretty substantial like alteration in your sleep habits and routine. And then what do you do if you travel and things like that? It it, it does open up some some complications from that. Side yeah.
0: Of thing. The point is, I think people, you know, if you're listening, you're like, yeah, well, there's not great evidence that screening everyone for sleep apnea is, you know, a great idea, but yet you guys are kind of advocating for it. So what do? And it's like, yeah, well, uh, we have evidence that treating the thing actually benefits people. We have a way to treat it. uh, And the harms of screening and treatment are relatively low compared to like, Everyone should get a whole body CT just to check like what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Right, right. And it's like, mm, probably not because yeah. there are harms, not really good evidence that that's going to do anything useful and, you know, all sorts yeah. of stuff.
1: And and I think that, you know, the, the part of the screening tool that we'll talk about in a minute has a little bit of like built in uh, uh, aspects that kind of narrows the population down that we're looking for. In other words, like I'm not, if, if somebody that I'm seeing tells me, yeah, I feel great during the day and I don't have high blood pressure and I feel fine then I'm not really typically chasing that much further. It's sure. usually in people who tell me I'm tired or, uh, th- or they have, you know, high blood pressure that I can't really explain in another way. Or like I get headaches in the morning or, you know, I, I don't feel well rested and then I'll take it further from there. So it's kind of typically more of a diagnostic angle, but, um, do I think, yeah, in the screening tool, one of the questions that we'll get to is like, do you feel tired, fatigued, or sleepy during the day? And if they say no, then we're like, kind of okay. done, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so yeah.
0: The only time you may go further is if they had, like, resistant hypertension, high blood pressure. Blood like pressure you, stuff. Yeah, you tried to treat it, and it's, like, not really responding. You're like, yeah. hmm. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe just used to feeling like crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. It, it's, again, and the last part of the screening thing, the reason why we're probably advocating for maybe a more aggressive screen, particularly for people who do feel tired or, are you know, sleepy during the day, uh, it's that this is wildly underdiagnosed. So in population surveys, this, the, from the American Heart Association's guidelines on sleep apnea screening, 86 to 95% of individuals found in population surveys that have clinically significant obstructive sleep apnea report no prior sleep apnea diagnosis. It's not like they're just out there living like, mm, yeah, I got sleep apnea, but I'm not going to do it. That Most people did, they didn't even know. And it's like, man, how often are people going to be able to see their physician, right? So you kind of worry about that follow-up. This is, can cause like serious problems. And we have good ways to treat it. So like, let's, let's do the damn thing anyway. All right, moving on. What is a screening tool? I love it. I love the name. Austin, take people through this, the the screening tool that we like.
1: Yeah, there are a few. The one that we use most commonly is called the stop bang questionnaire. And uh, each, each letter in that tool stands for one of the questions. And so, Um, the first question is, do you snore loudly? And that's louder than talking or loud enough to hear behind a closed door. I ask this, you know, when I'm going down this kind of pathway with patients and a lot of times they say, no, I don't snore, but you know, maybe they sleep alone and nobody would know. Or maybe they're, if they sleep with a bed partner, that person also snores or maybe is, is not uh, able to detect it. And so, um, if I find this question to be more useful when this person or their partner says, yes, they snore. Whereas if they say no, I often don't put as much stock in that just because it's harder for people to know for sure that they don't. Um, the next question is, uh, do you feel tired, sleepy, or fatigued during the day? Super useful question, uh, uh for this diagnosis and, and part of this evaluation. The next one is, uh, has anyone told you that you stop breathing at night. Uh, Sometimes uh, people will have witnessed somebody completely stop breathing for a few seconds, 10 seconds, something like that. And then they might actually gasp for air after that as they kind of, again, get that micro arousal that you talked about and then catch back up again. And that, if I hear somebody say that, then I am actually quite confident that they probably have sleep apnea. This is like probably the most specific uh, of the questions in here for the actual diagnosis, because it's like, yes, somebody witnessed me has, have, having sleep apnea. I probably have sleep apnea. Um, next is, uh, do you have or are you treated for high blood pressure? We've mentioned this a few times now, how this condition, uh, probably complicated set of reasons, including the sympathetic nervous system activation and, and other things can lead to high blood pressure. And uh, so this again is a uh, a feature that will immediately get my attention to ask about sleep in people and whether they uh, could have sleep apnea. The last, questions. Uh, B-A-N-G here, is your body mass index greater than 35? Um, And so that's the typical BMI calculator that uh, everybody would be familiar with or is easy easy enough to Google and put your own numbers in and see if it's greater than 35. That gets at the uh, question of the relationship between obesity, all this extra tissue around the neck, et cetera, et cetera, um, and sleep apnea. Uh, Is your age greater than 50? uh obviously we mentioned that middle age is where the risk st- really starts to go up and this increases uh, uh beyond that point although i will say i have seen tons of people below 50 <laughs> with this and so how much you know if they're below 50 i would not say that this like substantially decreases my suspicion that somebody might have sleep apnea if they tell me the other things that kind of smell like it like i'm tired sleepy during the day morning headaches things like that uh the uh, next question is is your neck circumference over the cutoffs that we mentioned earlier which uh, is usually a little bit of a tougher one because most people have not measured their own neck circumference and maybe they're not able to immediately do it on the spot. So I often have to ask them to uh, do that if I'm doing a telemedicine consultation or something like that. Um, and then the last question is uh, male, male versus female. We mentioned that male have higher risk uh, in general. And so then there's a scoring system for this um, and we'll have a link to this questionnaire and people can uh, click it and take the take the quiz if they want to and it'll basically spit out a score. And then there are kind of... Um, you can stratify your interpretation of the score between low risk uh, uh, for sleep apnea, intermediate risk for sleep apnea, high risk for sleep apnea based on the ultimate uh, kind of n- number of yes answers or like high risk answers that you, that you provide. And all of this is also outlined in the article on the website.
0: Yeah. Did you actually take the stop bang before you were evaluated?
1: Uh, no, because I felt bad and my <laughs> wife told me that I snored and that I, I can't remember if she told me that I stopped breathing or not, but that was the, the tiredness and the snoring was, was kind of enough for me to pursue that.
0: I uh I got spotted by my neurology attending when I was in medical school I- instead of making eye contact like you know most normal well adjusted humans would do. He was he was giving me the elevator eyes but only down to my neck. <laughs> and then he looked at my face and he goes you're 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 tired. I'm like every day. <laughs> He's like what's your neck? I was like these shirts are 17 and a half so I think yeah. he just did like my own stop bang sent me home from yeah. sleep study. Which which is a nice a nice, uh, uh, nice lead into how do we diagnose this you know there's like so there's two major options right the the sleep lab and the at home test like what goes on in a sleep lab a- and then when would you use the at home test uh, for people
1: yeah so going through a sleep test is a it's a bit of a process I will say um, and obviously we mentioned that with obstructive sleep apnea our main concern is this uh, issue of gas exchange and oxygen levels in the blood and things like that. And so that's obviously, again, those are going to be things that are monitored during a sleep test, your blood oxygen levels. There are going to be sensors like under your nose, for example, for like airflow in that, in that area and, and, uh, and a few other things. In an actual sleep, formal sleep lab, when you go into that, which is how I got my diagnosis, I went through that process, they actually hook you up to a number of other sensors. um, And that can be helpful, not just for the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, but also for numerous other sleep disorders that people may be familiar with, be it like a restless legs kind of thing or narcolepsy or any number of other kind of things that can be tested more formally in a a sleep lab. There are a bunch. And so these may include EEG or like electrical stickers that get put on your skull to monitor your brainwave activity. Um, again the oxygen sensors there's like a chest strap that will monitor your chest wall expansion or an abdominal similar for the abdomen, sensors on the legs to monitor your leg movement um, uh, one under the chin as well. So there's, there's, there are for uh, teeth grinding and things like that. And so there are a lot of sensors and this can admittedly be pretty distracting and uncomfortable because most people are not used to having that. And so uh, I hear from patients as well as my own experience going through that. It's like, yeah, it didn't feel like I slept great. Uh, but again, the people who collect the data and interpret it, they can generally tell if they had got enough data, got enough quality data to, to provide an interpretation and a diagnosis. And so an in lab test is, you know, technically going to be the the gold standard, the best quality that you can get as well as can help you diagnose the broadest number of, things. There are downsides, of course, you have to, you know, go into a lab at night and sleep there overnight. And when I did mine, I had to go right into work the next morning from there. And that was kind of inconvenient (laughs) and things like that. Uh, But there are certain situations uh, and reasons why uh, it would be recommended for somebody to get one done in a sleep lab. The alternative and what I use a lot of time with telemedicine patients that I work with who may be super busy, not have access to a sleep lab easily, um, or any any number of other reasons, in whom I have a reasonable enough suspicion that they may have sleep apnea is something called an at-home test. And there are companies that will basically mail you a kit with a smaller number of devices that you will monitor to include um, your oxygen saturation and and a couple of things, but it's not as elaborate as an in-lab test. And that data gets collected in the device and you mail it back and it gets interpreted and then the report gets sent to to the Who, who ordered the thing? Um, these tests can be quite effective uh, in a patient who you know is suspected they may have sleep apnea. Um, however, for people. The, the, they're imperfect tests for a variety of reasons. You're relying on the person to hook everything up right, do everything right. Um, they have pros in that you're at home in your own environment, uh, but there are other reasons why they may not provide as high quality of data as an in-lab test. And so as a result, if I have somebody who I'm quite worried or you know very concerned may have sleep apnea and I do a home sleep test, and it seems to suggest that they don't, I may, if my suspicion is high enough, I might still recommend that they get an in-lab test because I may not trust the. I might be worried about a false negative or something like that. Um, And, and there are other like, you know, really uh, high, critically important, you know, people who work in critically important positions like airline pilots and other things like that, where it's like, we can absolutely not miss this diagnosis where, um, where the more aggressive, like in lab testing may be recommended, uh, uh, because of the consequences or risks of a false negative kind of situation. You wouldn't want your, your plane crashing because somebody didn't, you know, did miss a diagnosis of sleep apnea in your pilot.
0: Yeah. The the sleep lab can be cool too with the, when they're doing the, the split, like the split sleep uh, stuff where they will like treat you in the middle of the night and kind of like figure out what your best uh uh you know settings are although it's less of a concern now with like the auto titrating yeah. CPAPs mm-hmm. but still like if you had kind of a funky sort of setup it'd be nice to get that done yeah. in the sleep lab Sure. Uh I had the this is embarrassing. Um but you know that's why we're here. I had, I had this this uh woman who was a, a patient of mine uh, a long time ago and it said on her DME list that she had uh, a CPAP, and I was like, "Oh, and you know, she did not tell me that she had obstructive sleep apnea during the her medical history. I go, and, and you have sleep apnea, right?" And She goes, "No, I don't have that." And I was like, "Well, you have a CPAP. What's the deal? It's like just recreational, like oxygen use, or what's the, you know, whatever." So she has catathrenia, this like prolonged expiration. Or like nighttime groaning, I think is like the common parlance where people like breathe out or groan or uh, at night for a long period of time. And they they sometimes desaturate. But in any case, you treat it with the CPAP. And I was like, mind blown. Yeah. I thought I was just in a bad mood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Can't say I've seen that one before.
0: No, but I was like, I looked it up. I was like, oh, that's a parasomnia. But yeah, there are other things that you would, you know. You know, somebody can have multiple parasomnias. That's the thing. Like they can have sleep apnea and restless legs and, or sure. like, you know, other sort of things. So yeah, sleep lab can be useful to kind of like, like, as you said, in a very critical setting, if you're trying to one and done, let's get this thing done, like diagnosed sleep lab. I just, I, you went to one. I've never been in
1: one. Do you think it's like, is it nice? <laughs> it was okay. I mean, it was okay. just the, it was just the sheer number of things that I was hooked up to. I was like, this is ridiculous. But it's not like a call room, right? No, no, no. It's it's uh, like a bedroom.
0: <laughs> that's what I imagine. It's like a call room. I go in there. You have PTSD. I can't sleep. I'm like <laughs> no, 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 waiting
1: for my pager to go off.
0: That's what I'm saying. They actually throw a pager in the middle of the night. It's actually, you're in like some sort of research setting. Yeah. Okay. So you get this diagnosis in their sleep lab or at home test or whatever. Now what? You got this diagnosis. Now you are an individual with sleep apnea. You get yeah. go to meetings. Do you? How do you treat this thing? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So there's obviously, we mentioned a whole bunch of risk factors that can increase the risk of sleep apnea. And so targeting those up front is always wise. And so the first is obesity, uh, trying to trying to manage that. If people can um, successfully lose and maintain weight loss, whether through their lifestyle means or lifestyle plus medication or lifestyle medication surgery, as we've talked about on other podcasts, significant weight loss can itself cure sleep apnea in some people. I will not say it's a guarantee in everybody. Some people who are relatively lean or are thin can still have it. But for those who have obesity and sleep apnea, weight loss can substantially improve uh, the severity of their condition or can make it, you know, Uh, minimal enough that it does not substantially impact their life. Um, There are other sleep-related things that can contribute to sleep apnea or, or otherwise to sleep quality. That, uh, can sometimes be addressed. For example, people with like really bad seasonal allergies, for example, that can cause, you know, really inflamed nasal passages and and other things that can impact airflow and ability to breathe during the night. And so treating allergies, if that's an, if that's an issue for a person as aggressively as needed to get that calmed down and improve the swelling and and inflammation and, and improve airflow, um, gastroesophageal reflux or what people commonly know as heartburn, even though it does not always have to cause actual burning or, or pain. Um, but reflux, uh, conditions can also impair sleep through a variety of ways. And so if that's an issue for somebody, uh, addressing that can also help. And then, so we're kind of working our way up from like the most conservative and lifestyle measures up towards the more specific treatments for sleep apnea. Um, on a sleep test, sometimes they will also break down the rate that people had breathing You know, episodes where they stopped or slowed down their breathing by body position, meaning were they on their back, were they on their side, were they on their front, uh, et cetera. And so there are some people who, for example, they will have tons of episodes when they're lying flat on their back and if they're on their side, they're totally fine. And so sometimes it's just simple positioning maneuvers for people may be enough if you can manage to keep them on their side. The question is how well, if you tell somebody to sleep on your side, do they actually stay on their side all night? And so then people have come up with various tricks. There are, you know, things like uh, straps with a tennis ball on them that get wrapped around the chest that make it, you know, with the tennis ball on your backside so that it's like just uncomfortable to lay down on your back. You got a tennis ball sticking between your shoulder blades as as an example, which is just like a, it's like a a way to make it unpleasant to sleep in the position where you stop breathing and just forces you to stay on your side. Works for some people if they, you know, uh, uh, if that's their situation and they don't want to use uh, uh, sleep apnea therapies like uh, CPAP. And then... Uh, so beyond all the lifestyle things, the allergies, the reflux, the uh, positioning maneuvers, if those are uh, uh, worthwhile or, or an option for a person, um, then the final ones that we'll mention, uh, I'll take the PAP and then you can mention what you use for the uh, for, for the other side. But uh, PAP basically stands for positive airway pressure. And these are machines that deliver a typically gentle amount of pressure um, and that pressure maintains at the end of your exhalation. Uh, and it makes it so that when you exhale, Uh, and the pressures in your airways are at their lowest, that little gentle back pressure that it provides is kind of just enough to keep everything open. And the way I kind of conceptualize this or I help people understand when I'm explaining this is to imagine when you're blowing up a balloon and you know, let's say it takes you multiple breaths to blow up the balloon and you have to kind of like hold a little bit of pressure against the the, the the balloon while you're taking in your next breath so that the balloon doesn't like push its air all the way back into your lungs. That little gentle amount of like back pressure that you have to put against the uh, partially inflated balloon is kind of like what's going on to keep all your airways and everything wide open, allowing for that smooth airflow during your actual breath. And so that's kind of what this machine helps to facilitate. And Historically, they were called CPAPs because that stood for continuous positive airway pressure, where it was just set at one particular pressure for a given individual. And that had to be determined in a lab setting often. Um, And that was kind of inconvenient. And people's pressure needs may vary uh, uh, throughout the course of a night or night to night. Or if you drank a little little bit more alcohol and things were a little more prone to collapsing or things like that, you may need different pressures. And so now we have more advanced machines. They're called APAPs or or uh, auto-PAP machines where they basically respond to your feedback, kind of pay attention to you, quote unquote, and will adjust the amount of pressure that is being applied throughout the night, night to night, et cetera, uh, based on your needs. And so those can increase comfort, uh, make it so that you don't feel like you're fighting the machine if the settings are not exactly right for you and can you know, make it so that they're a little bit easier to tolerate. And so that's what's used most often these days. Uh, and they're quite nice, honestly, because it's made it so that, you know from a telemedicine standpoint, if I'm working with somebody remotely, um, rather, than, rather than in person, If my suspicion is high, they have it. I can get them set up with a home sleep test. They can do it at home. I can set them up with an autopap and that can, you know, get the settings exactly to what they need on its own. And they end up never really having to go through a detailed, you know, evaluation and and, uh, titration process in in a sleep lab. And that may work well for them. Of course, if they run into issues along the way, they may need to you know, go in and, and, and get that reevaluated. But for a fair number of people, that seems to work pretty well, pretty convenient, and is much simpler than it used to be uh, in the past. Um, so that's the idea with, with PAP. Uh, what about the uh, oral yeah. appliance that you talk about?
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of different types of oral appliances, and they're just what they sound like. They're things that go in your mouth. And um, the most common one is called a mandibular advancement device or a MAD. Um, it basically tries to shove your mandible, the bottom part your jawbone forward a little bit to keep your airway open. Um, you can, th- those things uh, come in all different shapes and sizes. You can get them fully custom out like a f- custom kit. And those things are rather expensive. Usually insurance will cover it. Your dentist, uh, particularly if they have an interest in sleep medicine, uh, might be able to uh, make that for you or, or hook you up with another specialist uh, who does that or your sleep physician uh, definitely has a contact, somebody who could do a custom job. There's also ones that are like, we call them boil and bites. You just you pick them up at a pharmacy. You you make them hot, and then you bite down on them, so they're kind of like customized ish to your mouth. But that's for mandibular advancement devices. There's other ones that control the position of your tongue. So just they that all they're trying to do is keep the airway open, reduce snoring. Um, and, and to be fair, just to clarify, not fairness necessarily, but to clarify, uh, primary snoring is its own thing. That's not sleep apnea people can snore and not have sleep apnea and people can have sleep apnea and not necessarily snore a whole bunch so but just just to be clear the the benefit of these oral appliances and again there are there are other ones as well as uh, for mainly for people who either will not you like or cannot use the CPAP or the apap they just they like they got it they can't find a uh you know uh, either the nas- nasal pillows or the mask or some combination or uh, what that is comfortable and they throw it off in the middle of the night and they're uh, now they're inadequately treated even though they yeah. know they have the diagnosis.
1: Yeah, that can be that can be a tough situation and and it definitely involves some like expectation setting with people up front. Uh, if if the expectation is that oh I'll just put this on and sleep perfectly right away, like that is not. Typically, the way this goes, my own experience was like I got my auto pap and put it on, and I had a, a full face mask and um, around basically the nose and the mouth is is what I was wearing. And I wore the first night for like twenty minutes, and I was like, I can't do this. And then I was like, okay, I'm motivated though. So the next night, let me see if I can beat twenty minutes, and it was like an hour. And then the next night it was a little more. And then by the end of like a week or so, I was wearing it kind of throughout the night, just kind of got used to it uh, uh, over the course of a few nights, and. Um, That's a really common experience. And then additionally, there can be situations where the kind of mask that is used is not the best for the person or they may not like it or tolerate it. Um, And so there are a variety of mask options that can be discussed with the healthcare professional to see if there's one that can work better for you. Because again, like this is really worth fixing or addressing adequately if you can. And then finally, you know, if if the mask is not really the issue, then it could be related to the settings of the machine or something like that. So that's kind of, uh, there's a lot of troubleshooting that can be involved there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The oral appliances can be useful. I, I, I don't want people to, to think like that it's a either, or some people will like, you know, like me, for example, I have a traveling CPAP or APAP that I, I like take with me on the road. Uh, mainly because my oral appliance was very, very expensive and I'm like kind of afraid. Do You remember we got robbed in Florida, <laughs> our Airbnb. <laughs> well, I only figured it out cause that we got jacked because my toothbrush was on the living room floor. And then we realized that Tom's stuff was missing but yeah, my, my oral appliance is gone. And I'm like, dang, I'd rather them steal one of these like rink-a-dink, you know, travel, you know, CPAP things. But yeah, and I keep the oral appliance at home. Um, If you have severe sleep apnea, to my my knowledge, the oral appliance is not really the way to go. It just doesn't do enough. But um, yeah, if you have mild or, or moderate, you know, you may talk to your physicians, particularly if you're not really satisfied with how you're your ability to wear the mask and you guys have exhaustible options. And anyway, and I have
1: had I have had one patient who did not do great with many of these things. And ultimately there are some surgical options. They are not things that I recommend for people all the time. And they're not really things that I have a ton of um, direct uh, experience or expertise in to, to speak on at length, but there are surgical options that can be done basically on those soft tissues in the, in the back of the mouth, throat, palate, etc. cetera. Um, and so that's something that if you have this condition and it is not able to get adequately treated through these other means, it is something that is potentially worth at least asking or, or discussing about or having a consultation with a surgeon to see if it would be, you know, of, of benefit to you. So
0: like a spher- uh, pharyngoplasty or something or like hyoglossal nerve stimulation.
1: <laughs> I suspect there's a bunch of different ones based on the, the anatomy of the, the person and where their suspected issue is. But yeah, yeah.
0: It, just for our lifter folks, because we're going to wrap this up here. If you're listening to this, you're like, yeah, I'm kind of tired sometimes, but I don't always sleep as much. All right. My neck is approaching the cutoff, but you know, it's because I'm yoked. What's in it for me? Well, let me tell you, okay? If you make just a few logical leaps, you will see that sleep apnea may be inhibiting your gains. And I think I can make a pretty pretty solid argument. So we know, for example, that sleep apnea tends to reduce the sensitivity of individuals to dietary anabolic stimuli. And we know this because the muscle protein synthesis rates decrease. That's thing one. Thing two, we know that reduced sleep and poor sleep, uh, for example, that occurs secondary to untreated sleep apnea, okay, messes with your satiety and appetite. So you, you would likely become less full from a meal. You would likely overeat on uh, uh, energy-dense foods. You would likely increase your body fat mass, which is not something you want for the gains. Okay. We know that that also compromises performance across all different med, uh, uh, all different things, like cognitive performance, physical performance. So if you're trying to be your strongest, treat having your, your sleep under control would be great. And then finally, muscle mass itself. If you look at cross-sectional data on muscle mass and people with sleep apnea, it's no surprise that people with the highest amounts of, of muscle mass also have the highest incidences of sleep apnea. Why? Because this is correlated to BMI. In the general non-lifting population, people with uh, the highest BMIs also carry the most muscle mass. Now, what we see over time when they're untreated is that the muscle mass retains the same size but gets a lot of fatty depositions in them. you are losing skeletal contractile muscle tissue, and a lot of that is the the volume of the muscle is getting replaced with fat, which is not what you want when you're on the platform. So listen, if you're out there and you're like, you know, I do have some daytime fatigue, but I'm otherwise okay. I got enough pre-workout to get me going. (laughs) You don't want this. You don't want this smoke. And I, you can see if you're at moderate or high risk by just taking the, doing the screening test. I, we don't get any money. It's free. We don't get any money from this. <laughs> Re- ResMed isn't sponsoring this podcast. I'm just telling you that. But all of these lines of evidence, reduced muscle protein synthesis, altered satiety and appetite uh, regulation, decreased performance acutely, and then decreased uh, uh, contractile tissue long term i'd want to treat this
1: i i have nothing to say agree
0: i'm look uh, this may be one way one place where stan efforting and, uh, and I, we like agree we're like look man if I you want to like some other
1: places too but this is a free <laughs> <strong one. laughs> yeah
0: yeah 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 maybe maybe not as many as we, as we think <laughs> anyway uh, anything you want to add for this on sleep apnea stuff
1: I got nothing else,
0: man. All right, cool. So we got the article that's linked in the description below. We got the Stop Bang questionnaire linked in the description below. Also linked to all of our other stuff, our other podcasts, our free app, our uh, website, et cetera. So you guys know where to go. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I've been joined by Dr. Rocky. Big shout out to him. We're off next week because it's my birthday, but then we'll be back the week after that. So, until then, keep it right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.
1: Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks.